Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, the letter to the Hebrews chapter 10, we'll be reading verses 11 through 18, and considering the king crowned, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18, give attention to God's holy word. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified." But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is a remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit who is the author of your word. We confess that he alone is the only one who can make us understand your word. So we pray now that during this time of preaching, you would grant that Holy Spirit, that the anointing we have from the Holy One would teach us and that we might hear the voice of the Son of God. And we pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, many of you are probably aware that the Roman Empire, at its height, stretched all the way from northern Britain to the Persian Gulf, and all the way from the Caspian Sea to the coast of Morocco. The Roman Empire was... Uh, the size of this empire was a testament to the rule and the dominion of Caesar. In all of these places where the Roman Empire once held sway, you can find testimonies and witnesses to the long-gone dominion of Caesar. The aqueduct, the roads the temples, the columns, the arenas, all of these ruins of Rome are scattered across their former empire. And all of these ruins that are across this vast former empire all testified to the majesty that was Rome. When Caesar reigned, his majesty extended across, as Luke calls it in his gospel, the entire world. And wherever Caesar's dominion reigned, his word was law. He was crowned as king. As they used to say in the Roman Empire, Caesar is Lord. Caesar's dominion is no more. His witnesses are dead, cold ruins. Monuments to a majesty that has departed, never to return. Christ's dominion, however, has been established. Christ's dominion is a dominion and a kingdom that shall never end. Christ's dominion has been established, and his rule extends not across the Mediterranean basin. His rule extends across all lands under heaven. His rule doesn't go from the Caspian Sea to the Atlantic Ocean. His rule goes all the way to the extent of the heavens and the earth. And he has a witness to this rule. He has left a testimony of his majesty. A witness that is more effectual than the ruins of Rome. A witness that tells a message more powerful than the victory arch of Titus or the ruins of the Colosseum. His rule has been established. 
by the majesty of his sacrifice. And the Holy Spirit is not a dead, cold witness. The Holy Spirit is a living, present witness to these things. What we're going to see in this passage is that the majesty of Christ's sacrifice is proven in that he sits as king. And the Holy Spirit testifies to these things. The majesty of Christ's sacrifice is proven in that he now sits as king. And the Holy Spirit testifies to these things. We're going to notice two things in this passage. First, the majesty of Christ by comparison, verses 11 through 14. The majesty of Christ by comparison, verses 11 through 14. And then the testimony of the Spirit by consequence. The testimony of the Spirit by consequence, verses 15 through 18. I'll explain what those terms mean when we come to that part of the passage. First, we look at the majesty of Christ by comparison in verses 11 through 14. You notice that in the verse that our passage begins with, he he starts by saying this. Uh, He starts with a contrast, a comparison between the priestly ministry of Christ and the priestly ministry of the Levites, the sons of Aaron the priests who were ordained in the law of Moses. This has been the comparison that the author has been making since chapter 7. And now he comes, as it were, to the grand coronation conclusion of his whole argument. This is the sum of everything that he has been saying since chapter 7, and he concludes it in the passage in front of us. He begins by pointing out what the the Levitical priests do. Notice first he says that they stand. Every priest stands. The tense that's used here is just a generic description of what priests do. Your version in English has this translated in the present tense, and so it probably says stands, or if you read the King James, standeth, implying that he is currently standing when this was written. Now, some have taken this to mean that the temple in Jerusalem was still standing, that the sacrifices of the law were still going on when this letter was written. That could be the case, but the, the language of this verse doesn't, mean, doesn't, doesn't necessitate we read it that way. The, what the author is saying is very similar to some of the things we might say. All judges hear legal cases. It doesn't mean there's currently a legal case going on right now. I'm just describing what judges do. All students diligently pursue their school books. doesn't mean that students are pursuing school books right now, but it describes what students at least ought to be doing. Likewise, in this passage, the author is saying all priests stand. Now, I happen to think that that temple is still standing at this time when the author writes, but that's not necessary in this verse. That's all I'm trying to highlight. It indicates that the work is not complete. The priests of the Old Testament, when they would go into the Holy of Holies or they would offer their sacrifices, they're always standing up. They're always standing up and slaughtering animals or going to the altar, making the oblations with all the sacrificial blood and water and whatever the case may be. And even when they go into the temple, they're standing as they go to the table of showbread. They're standing as they fix the lamps in the tabernacle. And they're standing when they go into the Holy of Holies. They're always standing. Their work is never finished. Their work is never done. Notice also what the author says about their ministry. They stand, ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. This indicates activity that is pointless. If you are daily standing, doing repeatedly the same thing over and over and over, 
you're not accomplishing your purpose. This would be similar. Some of you may be aware of the New Deal under FDR. In that time, the country was in a depression, and so they thought, we got to get people to work. And one of the schemes they came up with was, we'll have these people dig a hole, I'm summarizing, and this other group of people fill that hole in. And then we'll go to the next place, dig the hole and fill it in, dig the hole and fill it in, dig the hole and fill it in, repeatedly, daily, doing the same work. Now we look at that and we all realize this is pointless labor. It's activity, but it doesn't accomplish any purpose. Likewise, with the work of the Levitical priest, daily, repeatedly, offering the same sacrifices. Notice also in verse 11 what he says about the effect of their sacrifices. It cannot take away sin. This phrase in Greek, the way that it's written, is a strong, emphatic phrase. There is a strong emphasis that these sacrifices are unable to remove sins. You'll recall in verse 3 of this same chapter, we looked at what the purpose of the sacrifices of the law were. Chapter 10, verse 3, the author tells us, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year after year. The purpose of the sacrifices of the law was to remind people you're still in your sins. It was to remind people that you are still unclean. It was not meant to take away sins. It was meant to highlight the radical corruption and presence of sin in the lives of the people. They were reminders of sin. John Owen, commenting on this passage, has a very good application for us. One of the things that he says is that if these ordained sacrifices, verse 8, which are offered according to the law, if these sacrifices offered by the ordained priest that God himself commanded in the words of Moses, if these cannot take away sin, how much less anything we come up with? Anything we imagine that might satisfy God's justice, how much less can we atone for our own sins if God's own priests were incapable of removing sin, offering the sacrifices He ordained? I fear many of us strive to paper over our sins. We strive to paper over our sins with good works, with lies, with so many fig leaf diapers. And yet we still carry our shame with us. Just like Adam and Eve who tried to come up with some way to cover their shame, put the fig leaves on, and when God showed up, they were still ashamed. Because the sin had not been removed. The sin had not been taken away. I fear there's, there's, there's two ways, if your heart is like my heart, there's really about, there's two ways that we try to come up with to remove our sins. One is good works. We're convicted of a sin and we think, all right, I need to read the Bible more. I need to pray better. I need to go to church more. I need to, to do some other activity. I need to do something to balance out the sin that I'm guilty of. The other way is we tell ourselves lies. We tell ourselves that that's not really a sin. It's, it's not really as bad as I think it is. This, is. this is just the opinion of someone else. This is not really a sin. And so we try to remove our sins, either through good works or self-deception. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing you can do, either through good works or through your own redefinition of the law to remove sin. If the priests of Aaron couldn't do it, how much less can we remove our own sins? So the author says that these priests stand ministering daily. Pointless labor, ineffective labor, labor that can never take away your sins. And then he contrasts this with Christ. Look at what he says in verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, 
This indicates the power of that sacrifice. The Levitical priests who offered the blood of bulls and goats had to do this constantly. The Lord Jesus Christ offering His own blood had to do it once. It was offered once. And its effects, the effects of the blood of Christ extend all the way to the end of history. And they are retroactively extended all the way back over the whole Old Testament. You know, uh, some of you may be aware, some of you were alive during this. Many of you perhaps weren't. Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980, over 40 years ago. And the effects remain today. The bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki were dropped in 1945, over 70 years ago. And the effects remain today. We look at these things and we marvel at the power, the power of God in the volcano and the destructive power of man to create weapons of war. And we marvel because the effects remain. Look at the marvel of Christ's sacrifice. Look at the power of his one offering to lay waste to sin forever. Notice also, when he says that this one sacrifice for sin, offered once forever, the effect is to make us holy. It's to perfect us. Look at verse 10. We looked at this last week. By that will, meaning the will of the Father, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Later on, the author is going to say the same thing in a bit different language in verse 14. He says, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. This is an example of what theologians will call definitive sanctification. Some of you may be familiar with the idea of sanctification, being made more holy as we walk with the Lord. There are two parts to sanctification. One is the definitive setting apart as holy through union with Christ. The other is the progressive growth in your personal holiness. What the author is emphasizing here is that through the blood of Christ, you who are united to Him have been forever perfected in God's sight, set apart as holy forever. The sacrifice, his sacrifice, does what the legal sacrifices could not do. It removes sin. It takes it away. It is no longer a factor. As I mentioned, the way the language is used here, the emphasis is on the pollution of sin. His emphasis is not so much on the guilt, meaning he takes away the wrath that you deserve, that is true. That's not his emphasis here. The emphasis here is that he takes away the pollution. He takes away the corruption. He takes away the shame of your uncleanness. And he takes away the power of your corruption. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Verse 40 and 42. Mark chapter 1, he records the cleansing of the leper. Now, as you know, in the Old Testament law, the leper was, as it were, a living picture of the corruption of sin. His body was rotten from head to toe. He was contagious. He was a living plague in the midst of the people. The leper had to cover his face. And he had to be cast out of the camp. And wherever the leper went, he had to call before him, unclean, unclean. So nobody would go near him. That's you and I in our sins. That's how corrupted and polluted we are because of sin. And I trust that if the Holy Spirit has touched your heart, perhaps your own conscience has said this about yourself. Isn't this how we feel when we're convicted? 
Unclean, unclean. Unworthy for human fellowship. Don't look at me. I am ashamed. I'm contagious. I'm a plague to everyone around me. But the Lord Jesus Christ cleanses the leper. Look at what happens. Verse 40, the leper comes to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You can make me holy. Now, in the case of the leper, this would be the removal of the pollution and therefore the removal of the shame. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing. Be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Paul the Apostle writes about our cleaning as well in Ephesians 5 through the sacrifice of Christ. Ephesians 5, Paul writes these words. 5 verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Notice that Paul's emphasis here is on cleansing and holiness. It's not on guilt and justification. It's on cleansing and holiness. Look at what he says. But fornication and all uncleanness... Or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It is our unholiness that provokes the wrath of God. And it is the blood of Christ that cleanses you from the uncleanness. It is the blood of Christ that saves you from this wrath because he makes you clean. Look to Christ. Do not look to your own works. Do not look to your own narratives. Look to the Lord Christ because he has offered the sacrifice that actually removes sin. Returning to Hebrews 10, we see more. Not only was his sacrifice a one-time sacrifice, unlike the daily sacrifices of the priests, but this priest, unlike the priests of the Old Testament, doesn't stand. He sits. Look at verse 13. I'm sorry, continuing in verse 12. After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. God is also called the majesty on high in this epistle. Chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 8, verse 1. He's called the majesty on high. This word majesty, it means greatness or stateliness. We speak about majestic mountains. We speak about lions being majestic with their mane, the way that they survey their dominion. We talk about the majesty of the Grand Canyon. All of these are pale comparisons to the majesty of God. To the majesty that where Christ is seated at his right hand in the heavenly places, he is far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Far above all the Caesars, far above all the emperors, far above all the kings, far above all the presidents, far above all might and power, he is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And he is far above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age which is to come, an age that we have not even experienced. Christ's name is greater. And he has put all things under his feet. And he gave him to be head over all things 
to the church. My words fail me to describe the majesty of God to you. I do not know how to describe it to you. Because the majesty of God is far above what any of us have seen, what any of us can imagine, what any of us can think. But what we do see in the scriptures is that when men are confronted with the majesty of God, they fall down as dead men. You see this in all the visions of the prophets. When they see the glory of the Lord, they fall down on their faces as dead. When John the Apostle is in the Spirit on the Lord's day, he hears the voice as of the sound of many uh, uh, rushing waters. He turns around and looks at the one who sees him, and he sees the resurrected Christ as king, clothed in glory, and he falls on his face as a dead man. That is how majestic God is. And this Christ is seated at his right hand. This Christ is crowned with glory and honor and dominion. This Christ is exalted above every name that is named. There are some in the church, not this church specifically, but in the church generically, who will not have Christ rule. There are some that teach and promote a view of Christ contrary to the truth of the gospel. There are some who teach that Christ does not rule right now. That when Christ comes and extends his power, he does not exercise authority over the hearts of men. They teach that God is not sovereign and that Christ is not seated reigning at the right hand of the Most High God. But brothers and sisters, Christ does rule. The current state of Christ is not hanging on the cross. The current state of Christ is not lying in the grave. The current state of Christ is not walking on the Emmaus Road. The current state of Christ is that He is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God with all authority in heaven and on earth, having been set on Mount Zion and now ruling the nations with a rod of iron. Psalm 2. The King has been crowned. Rejoice and be glad. Look not at your circumstances. Look not at your sins. Look not at all the power and vaunted dominion of the kings of the earth. They are as nothing in the sight of God and the Lord laughs at them saying I have set my king on Mount Zion who should we look to the Lord tells us in Isaiah 45 look to me and be saved all you ends of the earth for I am God as there is no other I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath, he shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. I don't want the reference to be lost on you. This passage from Isaiah 45 is quoted by Paul in Philippians 2. Turn with me to Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, Verse 6, Paul, uh, verse 5, Paul speaks about the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. He speaks about Christ's cross and Christ's crown. But notice the similarity of language. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory 
of God the Father. Returning to Isaiah, he says, To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord shall the descendants of Israel be justified and shall glory. Christ reigns because His sacrifice has put away sin forever. There is no more atoning work to be done. There is no more blood to be shed for the sins of His people. And so He sits at God's right hand. Notice, returning to Hebrews 10, the priests stand ministering daily. Christ offered one sacrifice and He sits waiting. What is He waiting for? Look at what the author says. Again in verse, uh, pardon me, verse 13. This man, after He'd offered one sacrifice for sin, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till His enemies are made His footstool. Now, this waiting of Christ is not like our waiting. Sometimes we wait for things and are not sure if it's going to happen. Sometimes we wait and expect and anticipate and hope and strive, and the thing we wait for may or may not come to pass. Christ's waiting is not that kind of waiting. Christ's waiting is the waiting of a sovereign who has nothing to disturb his peace and who knows for certain that his expectation will come to pass. His expectation is that his enemies will be made his footstool. Who are the enemies of Christ? This is a very important question to answer. Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, that the carnal mind is enmity with God. He says in Philippians 3, verses 18 through 19, that there are some who walk that are enemies of the cross of Christ, who set their mind on earthly things, whose God is their belly, who glory in their shame. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 9, Paul tells Timothy that perilous times will come because men will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They will be those who have a form of godliness but deny its power. So who are the enemies of Christ? The enemies of Christ are those who live in the flesh. The enemies of Christ are those who are carnal-minded and live carnal lives. All throughout Paul's epistles, he gives warnings about living according to the flesh. Romans chapter 8, Galatians chapter 5, Ephesians 5, Philippians 3, Colossians 3. In all of these passages, Paul warns the churches, do not live according to the flesh. Do not live in your sins. Why? Because Christ has overcome. You are no longer in your sins. Christ has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. Therefore, walk in the Spirit. Do not walk according to the flesh. The carnal-minded are the enemies of Christ. Now, who does this refer to? Well, at one level, it refers to all of us. Because being in fallen in Adam, we inherited the sinful flesh from him. And having inherited this sinful flesh, this corruption of nature, we are by nature, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, children of wrath, sons of disobedience. All of us, at one level, are the enemies of Christ. But Christ now is bringing his enemies to heal. He's bringing his enemies under his footstool. And the way that he does it now, it's through repentance. It's through repentance and reconciliation through his blood. And so now there are those who are no longer of the flesh, but they are of the spirit. 
They have been born from on high. They have been regenerated by the Spirit, and they no longer walk according to the flesh, but they walk according to the Spirit. And yet there are still others who still walk according to the flesh, who still live according to the flesh. And Paul says, pardon me, the author says, all of the enemies of Christ will be made his footstool, either now or when he returns. Every knee will bow, either now or at the end of history. Christ is waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. And then in verse 14, he gives the reason once again. He says, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The perfection of the sacrifice guarantees that sin has been defeated for all of mankind. There's a twofold application here. Because of his one offering that takes away sin, there's an application for salvation. We'll say more about this when we come to the end of the passage. But for you who are in Christ, you have already been perfected. You have already been set apart as holy. Christ has already done everything necessary for your salvation. His sacrifice perfects you forever. But notice those that are perfected. It says those who are being sanctified. You who have been set apart by the sacrifice of Christ are progressively and continually made more holy. You are now being sanctified more and more. There's also an application not for salvation but for damnation. Because the one sacrifice of Christ has been offered, there is no other escape from your sins. Not only so, but sin has been defeated. We can say in the course of history, as some movies will put it, sometimes in a bit of a corny fashion, good triumphs over evil. That's not just a hopeful pie-in-the-sky platitude. That is the reality of the world that we live in. Righteousness triumphs over sin. Sin has no future. Sin has no hope. Because the sovereign who holds sway over all the world has offered the sacrifice. Now let me apply this practically to those of you who are in Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, a very chaotic church. A very carnal church, as he says earlier on in the letter. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, either by teachers or by yourself. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Sin cannot inherit holiness. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sin does not define you. Your sin is not your identity. That's Paul's point. At one time, you were these unclean wretches but you were washed in the blood of Christ. You were justified, you were sanctified, you were set apart by the Lord Jesus Christ 
and by the Spirit of God. As you go through your life, think about yourself this way. Now you might be saying, Pastor, you don't know my sins. You don't know what I struggle with. In many cases, I probably don't. But here's the glory. Christ does. The Holy Spirit does. And the Holy Spirit says to you, you have been washed, you have been sanctified, and through the Lord Jesus Christ, you are no longer that. You are one of my holy ones on the earth. Think about yourself this way. This is the foundation of our repentance, brothers and sisters. Many times I think we repent to make up for our sins. We go to the works of repentance trying to atone for our own guilt. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is seeing our sin for what it is, wretched and filthy, and seeing the mercy of God in Christ and the power of the cross to cleanse us and repenting. Saying, Lord, I'm not going to live that way anymore. You have washed me. Help me to keep my clothes clean. You have cleansed me. Prevent me from getting my hands dirty. Think about yourself this way, brothers and sisters. But as I mentioned, because of the sacrifice of Christ, those that are still in the flesh have no escape. Very briefly, he says this in John 16, verse 11. The Holy Spirit's work is to convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And Christ says, of sin, because they do not believe in me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. You see, in the cross of Christ, Satan brought out his nuclear weapons. Satan brought out his most powerful means to undo the Son of God. But in the cross of Christ, Christ died and defeated death through the resurrection. And in defeating death, as it says in Hebrews 2.14, he defeated the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So if Christ has defeated the prince of this world, those who are of this world have no hope except in Christ. Because his sacrifice has defeated them. Just one more application on this point. You must strive to see Christ as he is. You must strive with all the strivings of faith in prayer and in the means of grace to see Christ high and lifted up, seated on the throne of his glory, because that's how he is right now. He is not as men imagine him to be. He is not as the movies depict him to be. He is not what we want him to be. He is what we need him to be. A sovereign ruling and reigning, pouring his grace out upon his people. See him that way, brothers and sisters. The king has been crowned. His gospel is the most powerful thing in your life. Not what you say about yourself. Not what others say about you. But his gospel. See him that way, brothers and sisters. You can only see him by faith. You cannot see him with these eyes. And so you must be in the means of grace and implore him. As many of the Psalms say, we sang it in Psalm 4, shine the light of your countenance upon me. Well, not only is Christ, his majesty is proven by the one-time sacrifice, it's also proven for us by the testimony of the Holy Spirit. This is verses 15 through 18. We'll be a little bit more brief on this section. Verses 15 through 18 is the testimony of the Spirit by consequence. Now, what do I mean by consequence? In the Reformed tradition, we recognize that um, the Scriptures are interpreted not only by the plain statements on the page, but also by good and necessary consequence. We draw conclusions from the passage. And these conclusions, if they are valid, if they are true, 
are also the testimony of the Holy Spirit. That's what our author is doing here. Give attention to what he does. Just a reminder what the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 10, says. It says this about life in the church. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. Now what we have in this passage, as I mentioned, is a controversy of religion. The author to the Hebrews is dealing with a dispute. Should we go back to the temple or should we remain Christians? It's difficult to remain a Christian. And the author to Hebrews brings the testimony of the Spirit to settle the dispute. He ends the debate here in this passage. The debate really is this. There's the Levitical priests who are ordained by the law. Verse 8 of our chapter. These sacrifices and these priests were ordained by the law. On the other side, you have Christ as a priest. He was ratified by miracles. Mighty deeds, rising from the dead, ascending to heaven. The transfiguration where Peter says, we beheld his glory. So which one do you decide? Do you stay with the law of Moses? It is the law of God. Or do you follow the mighty deeds and miracles of Christ? They are mighty deeds and miracles. And as the Jews will say in the gospel accounts, nobody can do the things that you do unless God is with you. How do you decide? The testimony of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures. And that's where he goes in verse 15. The Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, and then he quotes, express statements. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. He explicitly quotes the scriptures, but notice what he says about it. It's the Holy Spirit witnessing to us. He's quoting Old Testament passages and says that today the Holy Spirit is witnessing. Brothers and sisters, if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. But don't just read the Bible with your own understanding. Read the Bible under the influence of the Spirit. How does the Spirit influence us? He makes us humble. He makes us repentant. He gives us faith. The Holy Spirit testifies now through the Scriptures. Notice also he draws a conclusion from what he quoted. Verse 18. Now where there is remission of these... There is no longer an offering for sin. What is he talking about? He's talking about the passage he just quoted. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Then he draws a conclusion. If God doesn't remember sins anymore, there's no need for a sacrifice. Premise, conclusion. He draws this conclusion out. But even here we need to be careful. This is often a mistake I think Reformed people make. mistake I'm prone to make. Our persuasion that this is the truth of God is not our logic. It's not our own understanding. It's not the quality of our theology that guarantees the truth of God. It is the living testimony of the Spirit John says in 1 John 2.27, you have an anointing from the Holy One who teaches you all things. And this anointing from the Holy One and the testimony of the Spirit comes and it persuades you. It convinces you. It convicts you that what I'm reading and what I'm hearing is the truth of God. Irrefutably. Undeniably. Irresistibly. When the Holy Spirit's testimony comes, there is no more debate. There are no more questions. There is no more controversy, even as the author th says in this passage.
<laughs> Caesar reigned at one time, and his reign came to an end. But while Caesar reigned and his kingdom was expanding, he would go to provinces or countries or cities, and he would make them an offer. He would say, submit to Caesar, give me earth and water from your well, a pile of earth and a cup of water, signifying submission and allegiance. Give me earth and water, and I will spare your city. And you will enjoy all the privileges of being Romans. If, however, you refuse, I, Caesar, the commander of legions, the conqueror of Gaul, the destroyer of the Carthaginians, I, Caesar, will destroy you likewise. Make your choice. Open your gates to me, or I will open, my, I will open your gates for myself. Likewise, Christ, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and whose kingdom shall know no end, makes you an offer this morning. He comes to you just as Caesar did to the walls of that city. He comes to the walls of your soul. And he makes you an offer. Submit to me and you shall live. I have taken down mightier men than you. I have undone Caesar. I have undone the communists in Russia. I have undone empires mightier than you. And he makes you an offer through the gospel. As John writes in the book of Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Behold, Christ is at the gates of your soul. Submit and you will live. Resist and you will be destroyed. Because he is the king. He rules and reigns. And it is only in him that salvation is found. May God bless it to your hearts. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and the testimony of the Spirit. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would work in us what is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, and that you would do above and beyond what we ask or think, and we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.